Welcome to episode 223 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. You know, it's the Lord's Day. I'm looking forward to uh, when we can gather physically as the saints again. Hopefully the end is in sight as vaccination starts to come online. But other than that, not much to complain about. That's good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm excited for us to have another conversation about this book, Reset, which we're going to get into the second chapter on this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty stoked. This, this is, uh, it's nice because we're starting to pick up a little bit of speed. They're starting to, starting to move forward. Um, which is good. So let's do some affirmations and denials. Today was kind of like a last minute recording session. So I have affirmations and denials. My understanding is that you do not. So I will just go ahead. I do not for two reasons. One is I don't really, I, I can't think of anything strong to affirm or deny. So I want to save the people from weak affirmations and denials. But the second reason is because you are owed, at least in part, some small amount of congratulations for breaking a record last time. Now, <laughs> you had a very epic denial, which started at 2145. So we actually had 21 minutes of other stuff, affirmations and denials. And then you had a streak of 16 unbroken minutes of speaking <laughs> in which I think there was only maybe one or two breaths. So I am once again ceding my time to you, sir, in the off chance that we end up in the same place we were last week. So please, what do you want to start with, the affirmation or the denial? Well, well, we'll go quick this time and I'll start with my affirmation. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I actually am affirming a, a newish podcast it's called Today's Faith Matters, which is uh, kind of an interesting play on words. It's both Today's Faith Matters uh, and then also Today's Faith Matters. So it's it's things that are pertinent to the faith. Uh, and I re- actually recorded an episode uh, yesterday with the host, whose name is Josh, uh, and it was on the topic of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, uh, second edition. And uh, he has to split his episode into two episodes because we recorded for almost two hours. So it's a topic I'm passionate about. But check out his podcast. Uh, one of his like first episodes was with Les. Um, he's really doing kind of interview formats. He's trying to get I, I, you know, input from pastors, bloggers, podcasters. You know, he wants to interview people from Christianity Today. Really just about, you know, what's going on in the world and, and how does it affect and how does it uh, impact uh, the faith of the believers and, and the lives of believers. So today's Faith Matters, I think the first three episodes are up on iTunes, etc. or Apple Podcast if you want to get technical. Uh, but check it out. It's a it's a fun little show. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. He, he's got good interviews um, and he's just a good dude. That's a great affirmation. So if anybody listened last week and their appetite was wet by the 16 minutes <laughs> and it wasn't enough, you know where to go and find more. So how yeah. about the denial? What are you denying against? So this actually kind of plays into some of the stuff we're going to talk about during the episode. Um, there was a pretty high pro- profile case. So one of the things that is a blessing about Presbyterianism is that they have a mechanism for taking care of um, kind of like church court issues, church discipline issues that are broader than a single congregation. 
And so there was this high profile situation with a, um, a teaching elder named Michael Spangler. Um, I don't want to get into the details of that because it's not particularly important. But I saw on Twitter uh, this week uh, that one of the one of the presbyters or the elders that was present at this uh, trial, which was held during a regular presbytery meeting, is my understanding, uh, tested positive for COVID. And now it looks as though uh, 20-ish percent or more of the people present at the uh, meeting have tested positive. And this elder reports that there was uh, very limited social distancing. Most people were not wearing masks, lots of hugs and high fives um, and, and all sorts of um, you know physical, personal contact. So I, I guess I, I'm just denying uh, the lack of apparent wisdom and concern for just being smart about this. Um, I understand the church has business that needs to be accomplished and that's important. And I don't fault presbyteries or congregations who deem it necessary to gather uh, in person right now. I, I'm, that's not my job. It's not my role. It's way above my pay grade. I think there are good arguments both directions. Um, but if we are going to gather, and this is a point that R. Scott Clark has made several times, if we do find it necessary to gather, there is absolutely no reason why we can't exercise a little bit of prudence and caution. Um, and now not only does this presbytery have to deal with the fallout of this trial and the consequences and all the controversy that's going on, now they also have to deal with the fact that 20% of their, the elders or more in their presbytery are now sick and can't attend to their in-person gathering duties for the next two-ish weeks at least. Um, and that's assuming all of them you know, have relatively mild courses of illness and no, nobody gets seriously sick and dies. Um, so I'm, I'm just looking at a lot of the things, you know, um, John MacArthur's church is obviously a big example, but, uh, even, even more frivolous than, than I think some of his activity has been, uh, they decided they were still going to have a conference on a cruise ship. Um, you know, like a totally optional thing that has nothing to do with, um, the Lord's day worship or the things that the church is actually obligated to do. They just decided to continue to do their big conference and do it on a cruise ship. No, you know, whatever. So I just think we're getting to this point. Everybody's tired of the pandemic. Everybody's tired of being locked in their houses. Everybody's tired of the various uh, sacrifices that we have to make in order to keep ourselves and each other safe. Even the people like you and I who understand and believe that these these actions are necessary, these measures are necessary, it's getting to be wearing. So I just, I'm frustrated with the lack of concern and wisdom. And, and honestly, like, it brings shame on the name of Christ. It, it really does. Is, is Christians now have this reputation uh, in the United States, especially uh, of of sort of flaunting the public health rules and, and care for our neighbors. And whether that's right or wrong, it's still the reputation that we've begun to grow. Uh, and then you combine that with some of the zaniness that's been going on with political stuff. Uh, and, and now we have become quite a laughingstock. Uh, and, and it is true uh, in all ages that Christians will be mocked for the gospel. But when Christians start to be mocked for other things that have nothing to do with the gospel, because they're just being silly and foolish and reckless, uh, that really, that really drives me, drives me nuts. It makes me very frustrated. You're right that there's a lot in what you just said, that's going to be related to what we talk about on this episode. It strikes me basically what we're saying. I mean, man, almost tired of me saying this in my own voice, 
there's just this lack of understanding that physical issues are also spiritual issues and spiritual yeah. issues are also physical issues. Yes. So I think there's this, it's all cloaked in. We're continuing to do the gospel. We're continuing to do the work of Christ. We're continuing and we will not be thwarted in our meeting together, even while there are some that are actually bearing in their bodies the real physical cost of that decision making. Right. And some, I think, are having their consciences bound by this kind of overzealousness to me, despite yeah. the fact that we're living in a time where asymptomatic or otherwise people are walking around with all of us with the potentiality of a very contagious virus. Yeah. So it, yeah. it doesn't make sense. I understand that all of this stuff, the fatigue is a real thing. I, I see the words now, revenge spending being yeah. thrown around as in like everybody's tired. They haven't been able to spend the money they want to. They can't do the things they want to do. And so at some point they just break and they start to do the things anyway, almost hoping against hope. But of course, like this thing doesn't take a break. It doesn't get tired. Yeah. So we just need to be vigilant. And I actually think that like we talked about before, that God is really testing the metal of Christians. Part of it is it, I think it's a personal internal test of how much do we really believe that God is everything that we need in this time? Because we complain about not having access to things that we want or things that we like. And yet God made what God makes very clear in the epistles is that we have access to him and every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. So if we are going to be diligent in continuing to meet together as we're able to, even if that's via distance, I have seen great blessing in that because I think God rewards that kind of obedience. It's the kind of obedience that says we're not going to hesitate to get together in a venue that's safe. And it's also the kind of obedience that says we will not get together in a physical venue because that is unsafe. Right. So it's, it's not even that it's more nuanced. I just kind of want Christians to grow up a little bit. Not that I'm particularly grown up, but it's just that I think that we're getting tested in this in lots and lots of ways. And we really yeah. need to do a little bit of self-searching and reflection here. Yeah. And as I, as I said, I, I understand um, the arguments for the necessity of physical gathering. Um, and I agree with them. Uh, I think where I disagree with with some is whether or not there's ever an overriding concern. Um, I, and and I think sometimes people would say, yes, there could be an overriding concern and and this just isn't that. Uh, and I, I can understand and sympathize with that argument. But again, if a particular body decides, uh, you know, after searching the scriptures and praying about it, if a particular group of elders or, uh, you know, a ministry that has some sort of specific task that needs to be accomplished. If they decide that the only way to accomplish that is, is to gather physically, that's up to them. But there are ways that this can be done uh, in, in relative safety that don't take uh, a lot of extra effort. Um, you know, if, if these were somehow like insurmountable uh, obstacles, you know, if, if it was everybody who comes needs to be able to hold their breath for 15 minutes. And so, um, you see, you know, so you, you, you come in and you hold your breath for 15 minutes, then you go to some safe space and breathe. If it was something like that, fine, I, I get it. Like, ignore that. Like some things just can't be done and you have to, you have to weigh out the risk versus the benefit or the, the risk of loss. If you don't matter, you know, you don't gather there, there's risk versus risk sometimes, but these are simple, easy to accomplish, uh, measures that can be taken that I understand some of the scientific literature is not uh, clear and some of these things have not been tested as rigorously as we would like them to be. I think that'll come because coronavirus, even after the vaccine is is there, is likely not to just disappear. It's probably going to be something similar to a, a seasonal flu cycle for 
probably for a long time. But anecdotally, things like wearing masks, things like keeping your distance, things like uh, not having giant communal, you know, communal meals together, um, things like maybe possibly restricting singing if if it's not a necessary thing. Um, those things have been proven anecdotally to fight the spread of this thing. And so just wantonly not taking those. And, and you know, I was I was reminded of this, too, because I was I watched the inauguration on on Wednesday and that's a whole different you know, um, can of worms that I don't want to get into. But one thing that I noticed after, you know, after all the speeches and everybody's processing out, there was lots of handshakes and hugs from everybody on that dais. Like it, it was very much the case that social distancing norms just didn't seem important. And yes, I understand everybody who was at that had been tested and vetted and all of that. But, but there still is this element of, People just, I don't know if they forget or they stop caring or they think that they are somehow not in the category of people who could spread this thing. And then that's that's where it spreads. Somebody came to this Presbyterian meeting with coronavirus, likely symptomatic. The, the information about asymptomatic uh, spread is a little bit scant, but likely someone came to this who could have known they had had something going on and just brushed it off. That's that's the most likely occurrence. That's what they found is when you have these super spreader events, it's very rare that there's that there's no one at the the event that uh, is showing signs of coronavirus. It's usually someone came and, and just ignored the, the signs and then that becomes a super spreader event. And now we have uh, a super spreader event in uh, in a church and how many of these men who may have picked this up, went back to their own churches and their own families the next day and now spread this to other people and how many of them may have caught it and are not symptomatic yet and are going to spread it to their churches next week. This, you know, the week today. So I, I just think Christians as a whole need to be more wise and more cautious than we are. Uh, and we're getting to, we're getting to have a reputation. This isn't some crazy fringe charismatic group who thinks that they, you know, illness can't touch them. This is the Orthodox Presbyterian church. These are, these are the most cerebral and intellectual, uh, Christians probably that we have in America is people in the OPC and the RPCNA and they're just doing stupid things. So I don't want to belabor that point anymore. It does tie into some of the things we're going to talk about in this chapter, as far as the things God throws at us, um, the things that, um, shut us down and, and how the different aspects of our being kind of interact with each other. All of that all, will come into play here today. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, like in the final analysis, what this really shows is that Christians are still, still have an obligation, I think, to exhibit these patterns of protection better than anybody else. It's yeah. funny when I see people react to watching others and comparing their behavior and saying, well, so-and-so is, promulgated mask wearing and now I see them not doing it or I saw them in an environment where they were slapping hands or bumping chests. But to that, I would say like, since when should Christians have ever cared about what anybody else did except yeah. for the standards that God has given us? So this is why we, again, we've said this before time and time again, and there's fatigue here as well. We should be the best mask wearers. We should be the most compliant. We should be the most loving. Right. And you know, it's not for, for want because you know, funny you bring up like even like the flu, for instance, this week, the Wall Street Journal ran an article talking about how in so many places right now, the flu has almost been eradicated this season. And yeah. part of that is because of all these 
it's basically just a happy consequence or byproduct of all the other myriad of things, the menagerie of, of things that are going on in the world to protect from COVID-19. So I know like even all early on, Christians would ask questions, sometimes trying to be antagonistic, sometimes not like, well, does this mean we should wear the mask when we have flu now from now on? Or does it mean I always have to wear a mask if I'm sick? And I suppose the answer is why not? Yeah. I mean, it, I think at the end of the day, we're just seeing that there are things that we can do to show that we actually love one another. And that instead of somebody looking at Christians and seeing, saying, oh my gosh, these people, a ton of them got together in a place when there's a pandemic going on with a very contagious virus. Instead of that, I would at least love for them to say, like all the pictures show everybody fully masked, everybody socially distanced. Like right. if you're going to, we've said this before, if you're going to complain about us as Christians, let's get people to complain about the right things right. and not the things that you'd expect any other person. Like if the people at the VFW are being more protected and more compassionate toward one another than we are, that's a shame on us. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that we should just be honest with ourselves and be like, yeah, I'm tired of it. You're tired of it. But just like so many other things that God would call us to, like who hasn't been tired of the call to be holy? Who hasn't been tired of trying to keep up a pious life? Every Christian. Yeah. And so we ought to be praying for God's support, his grace and empowerment through the Holy Spirit to wear the mask, if that's what it takes for us to put it on again, when we've had it on and off six times already that day. And it just feels like, I just want to run in real quick. What's the big deal? Yeah. It is a big deal. Yeah, this is the last thing I'll say about it. The way that I look at it is, let's just take MacArthur's Church, for example, where you have literally multiple thousands of people gathering, uh, very little mask wearing. There's no real discernible changes about the way the service is run. Uh, if anything, they uh, kind of they kind of poke fun at the fact that they're not doing anything different. They kind of poke fun at the people who are making changes by like, oh, you guys are cowards. So they're so dedicated to worship that they basically do nothing different. How much more of a statement to the culture around it would it be if they could look at a group of Christians and say, they are so dedicated to the gathered physical worship of Jesus Christ Look at the look at the uh, measures that they will take, the inconveniences that they will submit themselves to in order to still be able to come together and worship Jesus Christ. You know, they want to be safe. So they they had to invest money in a registration system where you had to sign up and say you were coming to church so they could make sure that you had enough space. They had to, you know, that church, that church bought a bunch of masks for people that that church invested in hand sanitizer stations instead of us just saying Gathered worship is so important that we're just not going to do anything different. We're just going to keep doing it exactly the same way we are. It speaks much louder if people say those Christians are so committed to their worship that they were willing to inconvenience themselves. They were willing to submit themselves to all of these different things. And the one thing they weren't willing to do was to give up the public worship of Jesus Christ. That would be a lot more of a testimony to our culture than the people who aren't, they're not willing to give up the worship of Jesus Christ. And I com I commend them for that. I don't think that people who are, are opting for remote sessions are giving up the worship of Jesus Christ. I don't think we're doing public worship. That, that's a, that's a specific category. I don't think we're doing that. I think it's justified that we're not doing that right now. I know lots of people disagree with me. That's not the point, but the point is, uh, we have not taken steps to actually do so safely in a lot of quarters. And that doesn't really speak. That doesn't speak loudly. All it says is 
we're stubborn. I mean, that's what the, that's what the culture is hearing is that Christians are stubborn, which is already what they think about most of us. And I'm not into changing our behavior as a church specifically for the purpose of changing the perception of the culture, because the culture is always going to look down on us. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. That's, that's just a, a foregone conclusion. But what we can do is we can, uh, we can take away every bit of ammo that we can. And so instead of them looking at us and having legitimate reasons to scorn us, they should look stupid for scorning us. They should look foolish for pointing out things that we are doing because it's, it's one of those things where our conduct is so above reproach that, uh, the world has to basically make up things or has to point to silly things, um, in order to, to reproach us or to reprove us. So I don't want to, I don't want to keep going on that. I mean, you know, we, we have, and could do entire episodes on this. Um, and, and I, I'm, as this goes on, I can understand and sympathize more and more with the people who are saying enough is enough. I, I get that. I understand that perspective. I'm not there. I don't, I don't think we should get there, but I understand why people are there and I don't hold that against them, but we have to be smart about it. We have to be wise about it and we have to take care of each other. And that's just not what happened at this, at this presbytery meeting. And this is a perfect really segue into what we're talking about today, because there's so much about this shift in behavior even among Christians that's just built up around exhaustion and fatigue of having to do the same thing over and over, which is uncomfortable or the thing that you really don't want to do. But I also think that we need to look at this, what's going on. Let's talk about just the, the complying with the stuff like you were talking about. We need to look at that more as a connection of body and soul and how God has created us and how we might serve him in those things. I'm beginning to shift my perspective on that and see this as great opportunity, not cliche opportunity, like looking for the silver lining, but that God is actually doing a great work in Christians when they're able to show and explain why they're complying. So I decided a while ago in my own organization where I work, when these were first put into play and we had to wear the masks all the time, that I felt convicted that I should say why I'm wearing the mask if anybody asks me. And usually this comes up more in this kind of situation where somebody might come to talk to you and you throw up the mask because you're sitting in your office and they'd say, oh, no, 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 that's okay. Don't worry about it. And, and, I, was, and I decided I was going to say, I put it on first off because they were there. And second, I would say, no, 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 it's because, you know, they say something like, it's all right, I don't mind. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm not worried about me. I'm trying to love you. This is how I show that I love you and care for you. And I wouldn't drop away. I wouldn't move away from dropping the L-bomb because that's a little bit uncomfortable. I'm saying that to like any colleague with which I have a even slight acquaintance. I'm saying, this is how I show that I love you. Now that did open up into larger conversations sometimes because sometimes that would be just a point of fun, like lightning rod, like love. Wow. That's a strong word. I had no idea you felt that way about me. Like they'd say something like that. I say, no, it's true. And I, then I have an opportunity to say like, you know, as a Christian, I understand that God gives us the command to love him and to love everybody around us. And right now, this is how I show you that I actually care about you. And I would love it if people, when they're around Christians felt the most safe, not because it's not that things couldn't happen, but because they know they were going every extra mile and they could have a better sense that when they put on the mask, it wasn't like begrudgingly or because somebody told them to, but because behind that was all of this real sense of love and devotion to them. That I think is going to be something that carries forward beyond the mask wearing. So I actually start to see these things as really, really great opportunities to show that we are contingent beings that God has created us as we're about to talk about in this chapter. And second, that this is real love in action, like real love in action. We talk so much about, real love, we go back to DC Talks, love is a verb. And if that's true, then I think what we have to do as Christians 
is lean into this idea a little bit. Maybe we need to go before God the Father and ask right. him that he would sustain us in these things instead of being so quick to say, I'm just tired and I see that everybody else is falling down on the job. So I'm going to relax my standards a little bit too. That's like, we wouldn't do that with anything else, Christian, right? So why would we do it with this thing? So I think that we need to maybe take a hard look at the mirror. I'm talking to me. So yeah, this is something I've been processing. Yeah. Well, let's get into our chapter. So we, we are coming up on, uh, I suppose technically it's chapter three, but it's repair, repair bay two of this metaphor that uh, David Murray is using in the book Reset. And what his this metaphor is, is he, he painted this picture in the first repair bay or the first chapter about a car. And every car has dashboard lights. And some of the lights are kind of warning lights that something might be going wrong. Some of them are lights that say something is wrong. Uh, and, and so as you see these warning lights, they're there to direct us to bring that to the mechanic or to if we're we're you know mechanically minded to to fix it ourselves but the one thing we shouldn't do is ignore warning lights uh, i i had a car when i was in uh college where i didn't change the oil for like i don't know like two and a half years and the oil light was on for most of it and then one day i was driving to work and the engine just seized up and, and there was no recovering the car it was just gone you know there was nothing that could be done short of a full engine rebuild to to recover that and so the first repair bay that we talked about, um, oh man, I just lost it. My brain totally just left me. Um, the first re repair bay we talked about was reality check. And so this chapter was about the idea of if we keep going at full steam, if we ignore these, these reality checks, these warning lights, then God is going to give us a reality check. And sometimes that is a reality check that knocks us on our backs and forces us to stop. And so coming out of that chapter, we're coming into the second one. And this is really the, set, the the last chapter from what I can see so far that is kind of a retrospective chapter. So, And what I mean by that is the, the first chapter and the second chapter are sort of designed for us to look back and figure out how did we get to where we are? How did we get to the point where our warning lights are on? How did we get to the point where we crashed the car into the wall? How did we get to the point where the engine dropped out? So the first one was the reality check that that happens or has happened to you and what those warning signs are. The second one is kind of once once you've gotten to a point where you realize that you have to go through this reset process, which plot twist, everybody's there. Like we all need to go through this process to some degree or another. This chapter is about looking backwards and assessing and understanding what were the things that got us to there? What was the, you know, what was the, I didn't change the oil for two years that brought you to the point of having multiple blunt clots in your lungs or to the point where your marriage is falling apart or to the point where your ministry is suffering or to the point where you just don't want to do anything anymore, where you're in this depression, right? So that's what this chapter is about. It's, it's a way to sort of a, a rubric to kind of look back, at, which is why it's called review, but to look back at where, where you've been and how you got there. And it's not designed to be comprehensive, right? He, it's most of the chapter is like lists of different factors that you should consider. That doesn't mean those are all the factors. It just means this is the ones that he, he brought up. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed reading this chapter. I thought that it was really helpful to kind of, to kind of look at it. And the, the other point he makes, and then I'll, I'll kind of hand it off to you a little bit is he makes the point that you can't really fake this. You can't do, you can't just partially do this reset thing. You really need to go 
all in with this idea that we need to sort of like slow down and and evaluate our lives and and re reestablish a grace paced life. And he makes the point by by saying. You know, he went through this whole long story about getting blood clots in his lungs and how that was a wake up call. And then he opens up this chapter by saying, I basically ignored it. I didn't really follow through. And like three years later, I ended up back in the emergency room with the same exact issue. Um, And he's very up. He's very honest about it. And I really appreciate. I mean, I've listened to enough of David Murray's preaching that this doesn't surprise me, but he's very honest about about his emotions and about where he came and and he says he was weeping over the fact not primarily about the physical pain or about the concerns for his life but he was weeping over the fact that he did not learn the lesson that god had intended him to learn through what what had happened with the blood class the first time around so i I think that that was a really good way for him to open the, the chapter is just to say you know just just having the reality check and acknowledging the reality check doesn't doesn't change anything. If you go, yep, there's a warning light on on my dashboard and you don't do anything about it, then you then the warning light just stays there. Even if you turn it off for a little while, you, you know, you go in and you reset the computer and it 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 goes away for a little while, uh it's still going to just come right back if you don't actually address the root cause. This chapter is like a deep breath before the plunge. He's about to get in yeah. what he's calling at least these intensely practical steps where you're actually taking on some kind of activity or action. And he's just asking that you would pause real quick before you go into the doing, spend a little bit of time thinking, like you said, why you ended up here. And there's a couple of things that he puts forward that I think are worth exploring. And there, I would say for me, they're ideas that are slightly off center that are on the margin that I think we're familiar with thinking about, but maybe not exactly as he presents. And he starts with this idea that two things, in my opinion, he says we're God's creatures, and I think we'd all say, okay, next point. Let's move on. <laughs> this is all yeah. you got. Let's just get to the next chapter. And then he talks about creationists living like evolutionists. And so with respect to God's creatures, it's interesting that he's calling us to like a really experiential understanding of what creator means. That yeah. creator means not just the fact that God originated, he is the progenitor, that he is the one that establishes all life and, of course, sustains all life. I think most Christians would easily identify and resonate with those ideas. But more than that, he's saying you need to pay attention to the fact that you were actually created to be contingent and that we seldom live that we are actually contingent. Yeah. Certainly we pray and we're thankful for, for instance, our health or the activities we're able to do or the fact that God puts food on our table. And in that sense, there is some contingency that we're expressing. But he's really after this manifold, really dramatic sense of contingency that because you are contingent, God never created you to live in this kind of spurious, fast-paced way where you're sacrificing all things, including your health. Right. And he pairs that with this idea of what it means to live like a practical evolutionist. I think a lot of times we've heard of practical atheism, which might be sometimes manifested in even a Christian's life where we really lack a sense of real call to faith or our prayer closet is particularly shallow or our connection with God is not particularly deep, even though we seem to know a lot of things that again, it lacks an experiential element. But I was really kind of pushed on this idea of what it means to live like an evolutionist in the sense that, yes, we go through our days in some ways asking God to help us. But when it comes down to it, in the heat of the moment, we're doing something, we more or less believe and pretend and act like it does matter that we're the ones doing it and that we will continue to do it. And we'll hope that God comes along and blesses it, even if we're moving toward the point of exhaustion. And he makes the point that that is an evolutionary mindset. And I think that is a little jarring because 
it's jarring if you think about it long enough. And I've really been yeah. pondering that after this chapter. Yeah. And one of the things that I really appreciated, um, because a lot of times discussions about our finitude and our creatureliness and how that brings about limitations in our, our life, our abilities, whatever, a lot of times those are collapsed with the consequences of the fall. And it gives this impression that the fact that we can't push ourselves at 100%, 24-7 all the time is somehow because of the fall. Right. And he he makes the distinction here between, you know, he's got this, this sequence of points, and we'll, we'll go through some of them, but he has this sequence of points, and the fact that we are creatures is actually separated by a pretty substantial amount of text from the fact that, that there was a fall. And so the fact that we're creatures even apart from the fall, we often forget rest, the Sabbath principle, if you want to call it that, that was built into creation. That wasn't something that was added uh, at Sinai. And I know that somewhat that that is somewhat controversial. Some people will say, no, no, it wasn't. There's no evidence of a Sabbath prior to Sinai. It's not true. Um, the, the man gathering sticks was stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath before uh, the Sabbath was instituted at Sinai. So so we, we have this principle of rest not necessarily because fallen creatures just can't keep up that pace, but because creatures full stop can't keep up that pace. You know, we don't have any necessary biblical evidence that angels have to take some sort of rest period. Uh, but I think, I think we could probably deduce the fact that they're, they're not finite either, or they're not infinite either. So, so we, we look at creation and this is one of those things that's woven throughout the entire Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament law. The Sabbath principle is not limited just to man's work, right? The, the land needs a rest. You know, if, if you work the land too hard, and I'm not a farmer, I don't grow things, but I've asked people that I know that are farmers and they say, yeah, you can't work your field too hard. Like you have to give it, you have to sort of like section it off and give certain parts of the field a chance to rest or or eventually that land becomes fallow and it, it won't grow anything anymore. And so this, this principle of limitedness, this principle of finiteness is something that I think Christians as a whole probably need to recognize a little bit more than we do. Um, because there's, there's this idea in a lot of Christian circles that the idea of, uh, of taking a break and resting is not, not necessarily a, a Christian principle, right? That's the Protestant work ethic, right? That's what we got to do is the Protestant work ethic. Well, the, the Protestant work ethic primarily came from the Puritans and the Puritans took Sundays off, like rel religiously took, like it was, it was a, a grave sin for you to not, not. Uh, sanctify the Sabbath the way that you are expected to and the way that, that God's law expects you to. So I think that that's a really, really good point that he makes is that we just need to start. And this is one of the first, the first kind of bullet points in this chapter. We need to start our whole reflection on how we got to where we are by recognizing that it's not some failure in humanity. It's not some failure or sin in humanity that we need to take a break from time to time. It's actually part of what it means to be a creature. It it helps us to express our dependence on God that we are not able to continually move and continually go forward. Um, and, and you know, this is the other thing that we'll we'll get to. He talks about how we are complex creatures, right? So it's not it's not just a body, it's not just a soul, it's not just a mind. It's this composite of all three of those things, and each of those things is itself a composite of other things, and. I think that this made the point strongly is that 
we can't separate and distinguish ourselves and act as though the things that happen spiritually in our life or the things that happen physically in our life don't don't influence and interact the others. Um, and that, that was a strong point for me. And, and it, coming into knowing I was going to talk about this presbytery issue, this COVID issue, I think especially over this last year, the physical and emotional toll that has, has taken place uh, on all of us, um, combined with the fact that our normal, sort of our normal vehicles of spiritual renewal, you know, the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, uh, the things that God has given to the church to to build up and to sanctify us and to uh, restore us, those things have also been disrupted. And as we said, I think I think we they've been disrupted, first of all, by God. God was the one that did this to us. But second of all, I think that the churches that have decided that those things need to be suspended are doing the right thing. So I'm not criticizing that. But the fact is, our spiritual lives have been disrupted by the physical realities, and that's weighing on us as a whole person holistically. And so we can't just say, well, if I can just get back to church again, then, then everything will be fine. Well, no, like the stress of this pandemic is wearing on us. And also, like, if I can just get past the stress of the pandemic, then my spiritual life will get a little better. You have to look at kind of the whole situation comprehensively, which is what this chapter really, I think, really strives to do. The complex part is really fascinating, I think, and I love that he just takes that head on. It's interesting, and we would all agree, I think, generally, the point that he makes is that complex things, when they fail, they fail in a massive way because they're complex. And so in this, we have both and some way of showing that God is a beautiful, masterful, genius creator because he's created something that's very complex. And at the same time, it shows that complex machine, when you run it in a way that's outside the way in which God intended, it will fail in catastrophic ways. And they'll be across multiple systems and across multiple different processes. And I think it's easy for us to understand how, let's focus on it this way first. If you go from the physical to the spiritual impact, usually that's the place where we settle and it's easier for us to understand or consider that. Because we know when our loved ones or even ourselves, we get sick especially for a long period of time, if we're under some kind of physical duress, we know that that is a great challenge to our spirituality right. when our health fails us. What he's also asking is, what about when your health is just not that good and there's something you could do about it? In other words, you're carrying in your body too much stress because you're not undertaking good physical activity as God allows you to, yeah. to be able to properly exercise your muscles and to do something that's of you know great benefit to your mind as well. You know, one of the reasons why I enjoy running, this is such a, it's an odd fact to me, but there's been so many studies that show, this is crazy, but this is how God operates. Studies show that um, running, even for like five seconds at a time, actually helps with cognitive processing in the hippocampus. That actually develops those brain cells in particular. What a weird thing, right? What a strange thing. And yet clearly in all of creation, God has built in some sense that to work the body is to work the mind and to work the soul, that these things do in fact go together. So I appreciate that he just comes out with this point blank and says, listen, you are less, you are more limited than you think you are. And that's definitely true of me. I think only when we get rocked somehow, do we say, man, I am way more limited than I thought I was. It's really only when we go over the precipice that we look back up and say, yeah, I should never have been that close. I had no idea. I thought I could just carry on. I thought if I could just get this little bit more further, then I would stop and everything would yeah. be fine. Yeah. And we see that not just in the physical realm, but I think one of the places where in our modern times and in our culture where we get pressed upon 
to have a kind of a unlimited perspective is not just in the physical world, but in the emotional world. I think you and I have talked about this before, but I want to say it real quick again. And that is one of the things I have always struggled with is that the great access that we have through the internet, the information age, and social media in particular, to see everything that's happening almost anywhere in the world. And there are a lot of hard things happening everywhere. Yeah. That what this does is it imposes upon us some kind of faux sense of omnipresence. That's this idea that we can know so much, see so much, and we can become paralyzed by that so that we're not even meeting the needs in our own community because we get so overwhelmed with what's happening elsewhere. And this isn't to say we shouldn't pray for those things or be concerned about those things, but it is to say that really God has called us to act and to live and to be paced, even with our emotions, by serving those that are first at arm's length, those that are around us, as opposed to just getting concerned with every news feed that comes across our Facebook profile. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that, that leads to another point that he makes is he has a section he's calling the word and the world. And his point is that we understand spiritual matters, uh, primarily, if not exclusively through the revealed written word of God, but spiritual matters are not all that there is to know. And God has also given us the ability to, um, to, analyze and to um, interrogate the physical world that he's created with consistent laws and con- consistent behaviors. And so he, he uses the example of the, all of the studies that have shown that if you spend most of your day sitting, that you are reducing your lifespan, right? It's funny because I, I got an Apple watch uh, for midwinter, no season or no reason. And uh, one of the things that Apple watch does is it every hour it, it, it buzzes my wrist and says, you need to stand up for and move for a minute. And it's funny because I have a, a friend who's a, or a co-worker of mine who also has an Apple Watch. And he's like, yeah, that's really obnoxious. I turned it off. But what I've actually found since I've been doing that is I feel a lot better at the end of the day if I haven't spent eight hours on my butt in front of a computer screen. If I use that one minute to get up and walk over and get a, you know, and then you start to go like, well, what can I do with that one minute? Well, I can go get a glass of water. Well, now, you know, that, that feeds into the studies that show if you, if you drink a sufficient amount of water, you're going to feel better and you're going to lose weight and all these other things. And I think what we sometimes fail to recognize, and this is, this is one of those things that it, it kind of flabbergasts me when I think about how reformed Christians sometimes just don't get this. God has not spoken to us only in his word but he's spoken to us uh, in a special way in his word. But the reformed tradition has always understood that God also speaks to us through, through the way that creation has been uh, organized and created. And, and, you know, they talk about, I think it's the Heidelberg catechism, or maybe it's the Belgian confession, but the continental tradition talks about how God has these two books. One is the book of, of creation. One is the book of revelation, not, not the biblical book of revelation, but the, the book of, of special revelation. And the book of creation is still God speaking. It's still God's revelation to us, but it's general revelation. And so just like uh, we might look at uh, the the situation with coronavirus and go, well, there's been anecdotal and some experimental studies that have shown masks do stop the spread of coronavirus. There's no reason for us to ignore that. There's no reason for us to look at that. Even when some of those same scientists will also draw other conclusions and say, Science has taught us that there is no God. That is an illegitimate use of science. That doesn't mean that there is not a legitimate use of science, legitimate use of the of the natural sciences. And so I really appreciate that he said this and that he brought this up to say, you know, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot 
about our bodies in terms of the mechanics of our bodies. There are some things in there that actually um, the, the, the ancient Israelite understanding of things like the circulatory system and, and other, you know, biophysical things was way advanced beyond some of their Middle Eastern or ancient Near Eastern, um, you know, other cultures that, that thought some crazy things about the way the body works. And that, that can be attributed to, to God revealing things. But the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us like how to make penicillin or how to make a vaccination against, uh, you know, coronavirus or the flu or, or how to set a broken arm or how to make sure we get enough. It doesn't say anything about all of those things. Um, and so we, we have to understand, we have to look to what God has, has revealed simply by the way he's created the universe. And, and we have to not ignore those things. So whether that means wearing a mask or whether it means getting off your butt, you know, for a minute every hour, or whether it means spending 30 minutes on an exercise bike or going for a run, all of those things are important in making sure our bodies function correctly. And because we are, the technical term is a psychosomatic whole, right? We're a, we're a body, spirit, soul, fusion. We're not just one or the other thing because all of those things are fused together, that we're a, a, a composite creature like that. We can't totally say our bodies don't matter. Our bodies, you know, our bodies don't influence our spirits. Those things influence each other back and forth. So I appreciate that he is taking on this, this approach of saying like, yeah, this is a book about burnout, but it's not just about uh, about spiritual burnout. It's not just how, you know, it's the answer isn't just go pray more. It's also, yeah, well, yeah, you should pray more, but also maybe you should spend a little time getting, you know, getting back in shape. Your, your body's going to feel better. You're going to be able to pray with more focus if you're not tired all the time because you get enough sleep. All those things work together. Right. Yeah. I think that that's one of the great benefits of this chapter is he doesn't pull any punches and he's really concerned with getting us back to a place of understanding that God has created us because he's creator. He's created the body and the soul. This is integrative. And I appreciate that. He's not saying, nor are we saying that every Christian is supposed to be like a super athlete or like a professional athlete, like, or like all, power team. Yeah. Or like all, <laughs> like all Christians should be involved in CrossFit. That's not what he's saying. I, I think obviously there are legitimate limitations on our health that prevent any one of us from doing an activity that another person that we know and love is able to do. I think what he's after is find that thing though, that allows you to do a little bit of that, to work yeah. your body, to move around a little bit, because that in itself is God's great gift to us. And if we're fearfully and wonderfully made with this wonderful complex system of chemistry and physics and plumbing and electronics, all of this just exists. And of course we seldom appreciate that complexity until it fails us. Yeah. He's saying by just going for a walk, you are worshiping because you're appreciating all that stuff. And at the same time, you're doing something that allows you to continue to move forward in life in a way that's healthy. And God does want for us to be healthy body and soul. And so I think that, especially if we're looking to serve him, we need to cut out time for those things. We need to make those things a priority. And this is a grand experiment, I think, for a lot of Christians in the West, because we have for so many years bifurcated these two things and really focused so much on like this spiritual component. And spiritual disciplines are, of course, important. We've spoken about that at great length. And we rarely speak, though, about what are, would be complementary physical disciplines that we might want to undertake that would help us to bring the spiritual and the efficacy of our spiritual disciplines to a greater magnitude. And I think that's what he's after here. So I hope that I'm trying to process what this means for me, for yeah. my sleeping habits. I've actually been really convicted this week about sleeping habits. He talks a little bit about sleep, but I'm also reading another book that's not about sleep exclusively, but is talking about 
how we can get to a place to think of our future selves. You know, we've, we talked about this. We said it last week too. You brought it up just in the context of preparing for the Lord's day. So this is like, doesn't Jerry Seinfeld have that very famous bit where he talks about night, Jerry and morning, Jerry, night, Jerry wants to stay up morning. Jerry hates night, Jerry, because he goes to bed too late and he can't do anything about it. Yeah. This is the same type of thing, even for like preparing for the Lord's day. But what about the rest of the week? And what are we again, really doing to be thoughtful? Because those things can be and are acts of worship and obedience and kindness to God. When we undertake those as a way of saying, God, I want to be the most effective I can be at work tomorrow morning. And so I'm not just going to stay up and say, spend 45 minutes on the iPad when I probably should be going to bed and using that yeah. time to decompress and allow the nature that you created to heal me and to restore me, all those things. So this is like a lot to think about, but I think the point is we ought to think about it because for so long, at least for myself, this has been the thing I kind of shoved away. Like, yeah, it's great to do some exercise that has benefits, of course, but he, he's really saying, listen, loved ones. You yeah. need to understand the united nature of who you're created to be as contingent beings. Understand that you are unlimited and also understand that in some ways physically, I think we are far less limited than we understand. In other words, for those that would say like, you know, oh, I just, I feel sluggish and out of shape. That's okay. It's, it's about getting out and doing little things. And I think we'll find that God blesses those things and we're able to do a lot more than we thought we were able to do. Yeah. You don't have to be, think of yourself as again, like a professional athlete to just go out and enjoy a little bit of exercise. Yeah. Can I, uh, can I go on a little digression? You, you brought up sleep, which I think is, is yeah, of course. one of those things that I think almost everyone from a certain generation, um, and I don't mean like Gen Z, Gen X or whatever. I just mean like everybody in a certain age range struggles with this. And, and I, because of the way that my life unfolded, I went to my four-year university a little bit later than than most people do. And so I was at a different age when I got to college than my peers were. And then therefore I was at a different age than most of my peers were when I got to seminary. And so I was about four years behind everyone else because I went to community college. And instead of doing community college in two years, my dad was having health problems. I needed to work full time. You know, I needed to do certain things to get my health insurance. So I took four years to do my two-year degree. So I was behind when I got to, to um, university. And what that showed me, what I found was my peers were, were constantly talking about how they didn't have enough time to do their homework. They were, they were pulling all-nighters. They were, trying to get, they were trying to get things done. They just never felt like they had enough time. And I kept looking at the situation. Where I just don't understand... I'm, I'm, this might surprise people. I'm not a stellar student, to be honest with you. Like I, I, I don't take notes. I don't, I don't, I don't get things done on time. Like I'm not a great student. I'm, a, I think I'm a decent learner, but the, the structure of most formal like schooling doesn't jive with the way that I do things. But when I was in seminary, I was constantly hearing from people. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time to do the things I need to do. I just don't have enough time. And I didn't feel like I was running into that problem. And as I started to sort of talk to people and, uh, and sort of, and I was working full time. I, I wasn't even, uh, these people didn't have jobs. They, they, they were full-time students. They didn't have jobs. Uh, some of them had internships, but the first year of seminary, most of them didn't even have internships. And I remember when I realized the difference was that when I uh, when I was going to bed, everyone else was still awake. 
we would all be hanging out in the common room and I'd be that guy at like 8.30 that's like, all right, guys, I guess I better get to bed because I got to work in the morning or I've got an early class or I need to do some reading before my afternoon class or whatever it was. I was the one that was constantly getting teased because I was like, oh, yeah, it's the old man who goes to sleep early. But that extra energy that I gained by getting enough sleep in seminary and also in college, not as much, but in seminary and in college, that extra amount of energy that I had meant that my time was more productive when I was awake. The reading was better. I, the fact that I don't take notes wasn't as big of a problem because I was able to retain more of the stuff I was learning in class. All of that stuff was a result of the fact that I insisted on getting enough sleep. And it was because I was a little bit older. My body was not as fresh as, you know, when I was a, I was a 27 year old seminarian and I wasn't quite as spry as the 22 and 23 year old seminarians or the 24 year old seminarians. That extra sleep that I got is the reason I could succeed at seminary. It was the reason I could succeed at the different things that I do. Even now I go to sleep at nine o'clock and I get up at five o'clock in the morning. That extra hour that I have in the morning before everything else starts is the most productive hour of my day, right? I don't have to worry about the dog. I don't have responsibilities in terms of, of relational responsibilities because everyone else is sleeping. I can do whatever I need to do. I, I can spend as much time reading the Bible I want. I can, I can work on social media, you know, clip art and, and things that I'm, I'm making. I can, sometimes I do some editing for the show, but that hour of my day when no one else is awake and nothing else is going on is the most productive hour of my day. And, and all it takes, and I say this like it's not a sacrifice, but all it takes is a tiny, tiny bit of self-discipline to make sure I go to sleep at nine o'clock instead of staying up until 10 o'clock. I feel better throughout the day. I'm more productive at work because I'm well rested. I feel more productive because I'm not constantly feeling like the things I want to get done, I'm not able to get done. So it's little things. I think it starts, sometimes it starts with little things, little tweaks you can do that uh, that are exponentially beneficial. They're, the payout is way more than the effort. The extra amount of effort it takes for me to get ready to go to bed, I, you know, I start brushing my teeth at like 8.50 or whatever. The extra energy it takes for me to get in bed and get ready to go to sleep at 9 rather than 10 is, is almost nothing. But the benefit I gain from that is enormous. And I think that's that's where we are with this chapter, is it's looking back at the ways that your life, and I don't mean like life in the big picture, but the ways that like your everyday life, your everyday patterns have been derailed and are causing you more anxiety and you're losing. I don't want to frame this in terms of productivity necessarily. You're losing something by the way that you're living your life. Probably the first step is to, to get the low hanging fruit and figure out the small things you can do. And the first thing I would suggest, actually, you know, he's got this account with Albert Martin who says basically like exercise three days a week, take a full day off work and spend an evening with your wife. I would even say before that, I would say the first thing you need to do, set an alarm on your phone, go to sleep at nine o'clock wake up at six o'clock. Do that for a week. I guarantee you, you're going to feel better about yourself. I guarantee you, you're going to feel healthier and more productive if you get enough sleep. And then not everybody needs, I mean, that's nine hours. That's a, a bit much, but not everybody needs even eight hours of sleep. So, so then you just start to sort of tweak yourself down a little bit. You change it a little bit to see where your body feels best and where you feel the most productive and then give yourself a little flexibility. There are some days 
where I my alarm goes off at five and I can just feel when I open my eyes, I'm going to need a little bit more. So I, I just tap my watch. That's where my alarm's going off and tell me, give me another 30 minutes. I go to sleep. So I, I think, you know, there's all sorts of information in this chapter. He goes through a list of things that he calls life situations, things that are happening to you or around you that are going to affect affect you in a way that you need to understand. And then he has lifestyle things, which are kind of the way you live your life. We don't need to go through all of those. Uh, You can, people can read the chapter. It's not anything that would surprise you, but we need to take stock of the different situations that we're in and, and also realize there are times where something is going to happen to you or around you that you have no control over, and you're going to have to make an adjustment somewhere in your life. It's not as simple to say that it's an equation, but it's kind of like an equation that you need to balance, right? My stress is increased because of the pandemic. Well, what do I need to do about it? Maybe it means I need to cut out a TV show that I'm watching and I need to go to bed a little bit earlier. Or maybe it means that I need to eliminate some podcasts from my list and spend that extra time reading the scriptures or praying. Or there, there's an app that I picked up called Balance, which is, they call it a meditation app or a mindfulness app. And I know sometimes that gets a bad rap. Really all it is, and maybe, maybe it gets worse and I haven't gotten to it yet. It really is just about taking a second, listening to your body and sort of letting everything sit for a minute. And, and being kind of at a, a state of calm for a, a, a moderate amount of time. Right now, I think it's free. They, they gave away like a free year subscription. But I've been doing these mindfulness exercises where you just basically sit and you you count the number of breaths you take or you you sort of like focus on a part of your body and and think about the sensations you're feeling like I'm bald. So a lot of times it's like feel the feel the top of your head. Does it feel cold? And I'm like, yeah, because I have no hair. But Taking that time to sort of balance that equation, stress goes up, I need to find a way to release that stress and balancing that equation, I think is kind of the distilled core thought of this chapter is we have to look at all the things that have caused the stress, all the things that are causing, causing or potentially causing burnout. And now going forward into the next, the next eight repair bays or whatever it is, the next eight are going to be designed to sort of figure out how do we balance that equation out? How do we offset some of that stress in a way that allows us to regain that equilibrium that we all need in our lives? And even though we've been nominated several times as one of the 50 best healthcare podcasts, I do want to say by way of disclaimer and disclosure that, of course, if you want to get after some of these things, sleep or exercise in a particularly substantial way, please, of course, talk to a healthcare professional as well. We don't we're not certainly commending that you go out and do any particular thing, but that you actually think about it. And in that effort to kind of just back up and provide resources, I'll sneak in a posterior affirmation here. And that is all the stuff I was mentioning about running and the brain. I would recommend you go to jeffgalloway.com. Jeff Galloway is a very famous runner. I think he's actually 75 now, but he has He's known for creating a method called the walk run method. So he's 75 and he's still going out and being active. And he basically promulgates that there's the best way to do this activity is with running and walking. So if that makes it seem like a little bit more approachable to you, he has such wonderful resources. He's written several books and within those books, you'll find his reference to all these studies because he just went after it hard and wanted to understand if there was really a difference between running and walking, what's best for the mind, what's best for the body. It's one of those things, but I have plenty of good friends that actually aren't obnoxious that do CrossFit. And that I know is absolutely wonderful. I have lots of friends and like you, Tony, who 
are very, very devoted to sleep and sleep is a big deal. So it's just, there's all these wonderful things I enjoy learning. And it's just so wonderful that we no longer have to put them off as like, well, here's Tony and Jesse just having an episode of it being health nuts. Like they probably eat really well and, you know, only organic food. And I mean, the thing is, I think Christians should be concerned with all that stuff. And it doesn't automatically put you in this realm of being like some kind of really extremist or like long haired person living in the woods in you know, the Alaskan bush trying to survive on the land. Um, we want to do the kind of thing that's going to give us the pacing that allows us to serve God for as long as he has us here without burning out. And I think we're all, like you were saying, what is that word to describe how you're feeling right now? Probably it's a little bit of burnout. You're just getting yeah. burned up on some of this stuff. And so this is as good a time as any. Take a step back and really take what David Murray has to say uh, altogether into account. So in that, I want to say one last thing as we move into the closing, and that is, you know, we're so thankful for those that tag along with us on this journey. We'd love to hear some voicemails about what you think about this book, about what God is teaching you and what you're processing through as well. And this is a community. And to that end, I want to especially thank Brother Jason, who this week joined as a sponsor through Patreon. Oh, and so man. we're so grateful for his gifts And again, if you're the kind of person that you're thinking, you know what, I would like to somehow come alongside and maybe support this ministry in a particular way, lowercase m ministry, then you can go to the website reformbrotherhood.com and in the link for how do I join the brotherhood? Or I don't know the question is like, what can I do or to make the Reformation awesome? I don't know, whatever the (laughs) website says, you'll find a link for Patreon there. So thanks to Brother Jason. We're so grateful to have you supporting us it's very kind and generous, and uh, we praise God for your involvement. Yeah, I think the link actually says, how can I be the next Martin Luther? <laughs> so it's Even funny better. that you say, like, people Even think better. we must be health nuts. Here's the funniest thing. So yeah. I, I'm using, uh, I don't do New Year's resolutions because I, I, I just don't. I don't, if you do, no judgment. I mean, I mean like you, Jesse, but I mean, like, if the listener does, I, that's fine. I don't think there's any problem with doing it. I just never have. But one of the things I am trying to focus on is I need to lose a little bit of weight. Not necessarily uh, because I feel like I'm a big fatty, but just because I, I, like I know for health reasons I need to lose a little bit of weight. And one of the things I'm doing to do that is I've started counting calories. And there have been all sorts of studies that show even if you don't intentionally change anything about your diet, simply logging what you eat and how many calories it is tends to lead to weight loss because we, we all tend to eat more. We tend to eat more calories than we think we do. And the app that I'm using is called Lose It, which is a, it's just something available for, um, for iPhone. They have it for Android. And one of the things it does is it identifies trends that show like what you tend to eat when you um, when you hit your calorie budget. And this is not going to surprise you because you know how much I love this food. But I was delighted to get the notification that says, you do a good job fitting cheese into your plan. <laughs> and what I've learned is that on average, if I have cheese during the day, sometime during the day, which in in this it's been mostly when I have a sandwich with cheese on it, I tend to eat 232 calories less than my budget when I have cheese during the day. Uh, on the same list is oatmeal, oat milk lattes from Dunkin' Donuts, cream, mayonnaise, and deli meat. So I, I just that's just a humorous way to, to look at it. But, you know, it's funny because we live in a day and age when it is remarkably easy to get assistance on this stuff. And so, yes, I want to echo everything that Jesse said about consulting your doctor before you engage in an exercise plan and all that stuff. But 
at the same time, like you can pick up a, an app on your phone or use a, a web app that helps you understand what you're eating and how it's affecting your body. And, and like those kinds of things are relatively straightforward things that you can do. Um, you know, al- almost every wearable device like a Fitbit or an Apple watch has sleep tracking. Sometimes it's hard to get your head around how much sleep you're actually getting because we all wake up various times through the, throughout the night. And so being able to see, you know, what I, what I learned was interesting is I used to have a Fitbit that had like a really sensitive sleep tracking on it. And I was finding that even though I was in bed for close to nine hours, I was actually only getting seven and a half hours of sleep because of how many times I was waking up throughout the night. So then I had to look and go, well, why am I waking up throughout the night? And I realized like, well, I, I tended to drink alcohol in the evening. I'd have a beer with dinner. Well, that's going to disrupt your sleep patterns. So a lot of this stuff is not, it's not rocket science, but it is something that we need a little bit of help with. And, and it's not, you know, it's not just, um, health stuff. Like we don't, we're not, we're not really a healthcare podcast, even though we joke about being a healthcare podcast, we, you know, we are, we are award-winning or nominated healthcare podcast, but we're not actually a pod, a healthcare podcast. How many times can I say healthcare podcast in the course of like a 30 second segment? Um, but that said, even spiritual life things, there's a whole host of apps that can be used to help you build a prayer rhythm. Um, I've been I've been using uh, an app, or actually I just put it in the reminders on my phone. I've been using the daily offices, which is just a, a, a sort of set times of prayer that the church historically has used either among monks or among people who just want to set a daily rhythm. And so I get a little alarm on my phone every, every couple of hours that says pray. And I have a list of things that I I keep kind of on my phone of things that I'm praying for. And so even when I'm at work, I just take a second between phone calls and I say a quick prayer and I thank God for my day. And, and, you know, I look at my phone and I go, well, I, I know that, I know that this person is dealing with this health issue or this person is trying to sell their house or this person is looking for a new job. And I can say a 30 second prayer, dear Lord, please help this person find a job. Jesus, please, please help this person uh, to come through this health challenge, recognizing yourself, whatever the prayer is, it doesn't have to be long prayers. You don't have to, you don't have to pray like the Valley of Vision every day. You don't have to stand up on a soapbox and, and use a bunch of these and those. You can say a quick prayer. And that has done wonders for me of just building that rhythm of constantly going back to the Lord in prayer. So, so we live in an age where there's so many tools and so many things available to us that help us. We almost don't have an excuse anymore for not taking advantage of them. And most of them are free. I mean, free is a relative term, I guess. Like, there's nothing's actually free, but you know what I mean. So I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this book. I'm glad that we're going through it. This book is so much more practical than I realized it was when we decided to do this book. And I, at first, I was kind of like, oh, man, there's not a lot of, like, theology to discuss. But there's an element of it that is, like, it's nice to actually put some shoe leather to do episodes that are just about the shoe leather, is really, really re-refreshing, I think is the word I'm looking for. That's great. He actually begins the chapter by saying the thing that we've talked about a long time ago, or in almost every episode since the, the first one, which was you go the wrong way when you believe the wrong things. That's actually right. where he starts. So yep. there's plenty of theology in there. And I love that basically what he says is, I'm not going to sacrifice either one of these things, that to live kind of this abundant spiritual life is in some ways to make sure that you also focus on what your physical well-being is like. 
And I love that he doesn't sacrifice one or the other. He's really serious about this psychosomatic hole. And yes. I think that's something that gets a lot less emphasis in most Christian circles than it should. So yeah. I too am glad, at least like we're, we're confronting, like maybe people are like, man, I just don't want to listen to this conversation anymore. And that would be fair. We probably get that a lot. Yeah. But in this case, I'm hoping if you're feeling that way, it's because maybe it's a challenge to you. And that, you know, not to mention that he talks a lot about how, you know, your physical health can be influenced by your spiritual health. And so this is a reminder, again, of something we've talked about before and we don't need to rehash. But this idea that we need to examine our own lives, if we have unrepentant sin, if we have besetting sins, that these do in all ways have some kind of impact on us physically. It's not to say that a person is sick simply because there is besetting sin. It doesn't work that way all the time. And yet the scripture is clear that it often does work that way, or it does have some influence in our life. It can cause us to lead us to burnout, especially because that disrupts our harmony with God. Yeah. So while our identity may be secure, the disruption of that harmony is sure to have physical effects in the short term, but definitely in the long term. So yeah. I'm with you. Let's just keep getting after it, loved ones. I think actually it's a different kind of deep theology, the kind of theology that's causing us to maybe get, just grab our shoes and go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are, uh, we're just starting on this. So if you have not picked up the book yet and you want to jump in and read along with us, you can pick it up on Amazon or Crossway or anywhere that books are sold. It's, it's definitely affordable. Jesse and I are using the Kindle version. So if you want to make sure that when we reference a page, you're on the same page, uh, you can pick that up. Um, and we are going to be doing a giveaway. Crossway has generously provided a copy for us to give away. Uh, and what we're saying is we don't want you to get that book to have it for yourself. We're hoping that those who are coming along uh, on this book club with us have already purchased the book and read through it. And when you win that contest, that you're able to give it to someone in your life that you know needs it, whether maybe that's your pastor, maybe it's your brother-in-law, maybe it's your, uh, maybe it's your neighbor down the road, maybe it's someone at your church, but somebody in your life is going to need to understand that we all need to reset a little bit. Uh, And so... So check it out, pick up the book uh, and read along with us. We're just getting started. We're doing three uh, three episodes a month dedicated to Reset by David Murray. So next week we're going to do a, a more general topic um, and then we'll we'll be back in uh, once we get into February with another uh, another hit at uh, this book. So Jesse, I, you know I'm, I'm just glad that we're doing this because I think as I've said a couple times now, we all are under tremendous amount of stress just in general in our lives the pace of our lives has become undoable uh for most of us and there was a quote in this chapter that i wanted i wanted to read because it just hit me it hit me really hard when i read it um i want to get back to it and uh read it but it hit me hard because this book was written several years ago right i think 2015 is what we said and he, he says this on page 46, and this is what I'll close with. He's quoting someone named Richard Swenson. He says, no one in the history of humankind has ever had to live with the number and intensity of stressors that we have acting upon us today. They are unprecedented. 
the human spirit is called upon to withstand rapid changes and pressures never before encountered. That was true in 2015 when this book was written. How much more true is it now in 2021 in the middle of a global pandemic that none of us have ever experienced with political upheaval and geopolitical international upheaval? I mean, there's there's things going on that that, that are beyond the comprehension of, of people in, in previous generations, partly because we would never have known about the protests going on in in Russia or the the plight of the the Uyghur people in China. Like we would just never have known about those those difficulties that are going on in the world. But knowing about them adds a certain amount of stress. So I really hope that our listeners really take this book series to heart because we're not doing this just because we needed another book to talk about. Like we we don't need to do book club. We chose this book because we thought that it was going to be of spiritual, physical, and emotional benefit to not only ourselves, but to those who are working through it with us. So pick up the book, join us for this uh for this exercise. Hopefully we can all come out of this a little bit more uh even keel and a little bit less burned out. Um so I'm excited to keep moving through it. And we'll be back with another book club in a couple of weeks. But until then, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>